It is a privilege to be here, and I'm glad I've still got three hours to talk, so that's good. <laughs> Just um, an addendum from the last time I was here that has been on, on my mind a lot. It was Shirley who pointed out. I mentioned that the, our God is a God of mixture, and I, I really rue the, the term I said, and I'm sure a few of you picked up on it. What I was trying to say was that God is a complex whole of several parts, each of which are integral to make the whole, that of justice, of mercy, of purity, holiness, and love. Not that there's a mixture from different sources. That is absolutely not what I was trying to say. There, the record is straight. Really, the word from last night and tonight has been very much on my heart since we got back. And the Lord speaks to me through the mission. Um, I'm not a, the a theologian, I'm not a teacher, I, I, I'm, I'm just a doctor who, who is involved in this work. But God really speaks to me and, and I always feel I want to share the lessons of New Foundations because it's just endlessly fascinating what God is doing. When we came back, we saw how God's hand is in the work, that had we been on the ball, we would have seen his hand at the beginning because we had set a task for each of the workers to do, and that was to produce a clerking sheet for the doctors here. Oh, she's not here. Um, that means what you do when a patient comes in, just to give us a sort of a resume of the examination of a patient. Quite a mundane thing, but just as a review. And 11 of them, did a really good job and handed it in and there were some who it was very much on the cusp and there was a few it was just appalling and one who didn't even hand it in. God had sifted them in that task because the 11 who handed it in are the 11 who you see up there and we had no idea that they had self-selected through God's hand in that task. That was on the first day of our final camp in the Delta. So when we look back, we saw that God was already at work, giving a simple thing to see the heart that these people had. Where is your heart in this work? One was a senior who's been with us for 15 years, and she didn't see that she had to hand it in. God just took her out. We love her, she's a sister, but God said no no more, and took her out of the work. The young one, Israel, who is not the most skilled, but such a servant heart, God brought in. And the newest one, who's, who really doesn't know anything, God said stay. Why? Because his heart, he's been trying to join the organization for years. He travels two and a half hours on a bus from a city to come. And we said, why? You can earn more in the town. He said, no, God has called me to this. And God has honored that. So what we're seeing is men and women who are abandoned for what God is calling them to do. Proverbs 3.5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, 
and he will make your path straight. The real essence of what I want to share is this, can I move this? Because I, I always feel I'm talking. I now have freedom to walk around. What I'm talking about Is that better? Okay. Yeah, okay. Yes. Good. What I'm talking about here is absolute surrender. You will notice that's the title of a book. Andrew Murray. I think the greatest book beside the Bible I've read. Simple, forthright, and anointed. And when I read this paragraph I'm going to share... I WhatsApped it to every member of the team because it summed up exactly where we are now. He writes, absolute surrender. Let me tell you where I got those words. I use them myself often and you have heard them numberless times. But in Scotland once, I was in, in a company where we were talking about the condition of Christ's church and what the great need of the church and of believers is. And there was in our company a godly worker who has much to do in training. And I asked him what he would say was a great need of the church and the message that ought to be preached. He answered very quietly, simply and determinedly, absolute surrender to God is the one thing. The word struck me as never before. And that man began to tell how in the workers with whom he had to deal, he finds that if they are sound on that point, even though they are backward, they are willing to be taught and helped, and they always improve. Whereas others who are not sound there very often go back and leave the work. The condition for obtaining God's full blessing is absolute surrender to him. That just jumped out at me because that summed up exactly our situation. The workers who were abandoned to God's call upon their life, who had surrendered to the purpose for which they had been given, were the ones who were improving, moving forward, taking responsibility, being sent to college, taking ownership of the work, evangelizing, standing up, becoming the person which God had ordained them to be through submission to him. And the ones who were not surrendered, who were there because it was a salary, taken out of the picture immediately. And there's a lesson there, isn't there? One sees the blessing comes with obedience, submission to him. And this must be the basis for all of us who purport to be followers of Jesus Christ. And then I thought, well, what is surrender? Because we all think, oh, surrender is giving up or giving in to something. And yes, it is. If you think of the word of surrender, traditionally is a yielding, a, a compulsive submission to a greater power, a laying down of your own force, strength, in the recognition that something greater is coming against you, against which you, you have no capacity to repel. One thinks military surrender especially. 
coming under the authority of a stronger force. Overwhelming odds that makes resistance futile. We come under a new authority. And then I thought, well, it's something that... I always have an absolute fear of a general anaesthetic. I'm sure there's a few of you who feel the same, because that, to me, is the ultimate surrender. Because there's a surrender of your consciousness, there's a surrender of your freedom to breathe, there's a surrender of sensation because of the opiates that are pumped into you. In a sense, it's like death to me. I, I, you know, it's all very well for me to send them off, for, <laughs> but I personally would not like a general anaesthetic. We're, because it's giving away of control, isn't it? It's recognizing that I have a problem that needs fixed. This person has the capacity to solve it, and I'm going to abdicate full responsibility to them. Something I feel extremely uncomfortable about. That, in a sense, is the objective view of surrender. But actually, when one thinks beyond that, Christian surrender is so different. So different. When we surrender to God, we're affirming his intended path for our life. We are voluntarily giving over authority to another authority, which we have a revelation of what that authority is. It's not like a province that's coming under the servile relationship of Rome that's going to exert control over it. No. It's actually seeing that here is an authority of value which I aspire to, which I can never achieve. And I'm going to give it voluntarily. It's volition. And as always with God's economy, there's a paradox. Because as we surrender completely to him, we become completely free. And normally surrender, you're imprisoned. You come under... Another authority with no freedom at all. But with God, we are completely free. And it, as, as John was talking about the cast-down eyes of the Mottingham residents, and those in our area were trying to avoid the potholes in the lane, are downtrodden. They do not see that they're actually imprisoned in their situation. But we look up to the hills from whence comes our help. And our help comes from the Lord. It's a direct opposition to the human concept of surrender. John 8, 34, 36. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, such a well-known line, therefore if a son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Those who do not know Christ are surrendered to sin, they're imprisoned. But when we know Christ, we are free, having surrendered to the will of God. Matthew 16:25 For whosoever will save his life shall lose it 
And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. I always find that God's economy is the, is the opposite to human understanding, isn't it? We think we understand how God thinks, but his ways are so past our finding out that when we trust and obey, it's, it is the only way. And yet, there's a proviso on this because when we think of being fully surrendered and free in Christ, there is a caveat, of course, that we are but flesh. And we have the unfortunate appendage of our carnal corpse strapped to our back, which we then have to drag around for our duration, for which we are not free from. It's a duality of renewal spiritually, but we're carrying around a dead man on our back. And that is the, is the status of a Christian. That consciousness of where we have come from, what we are capable of, the carnality that rears its head up at every opportunity. And we'll come on to that, what that means in a bit. And again, that is curious because if you look at a lot of contemporary churches and, and secular thinking especially, especially in New Age and the, you know, and the modern liberal thinking of the, tr of the relative truth that you can define yourself as anything, that there's something intrinsically good in man that we're all free to do our own thing and that we can define our own reality, that there's worthiness and value in humanity, which of course there is looking at humanity through God's eyes. But when we look through man's eyes, there is just intrinsic sin and depravity. The Christian, I would like to think, knows how to surrender. But actually, when you look at the Christian life, I, I, I suggest that we've got four ways of surrendering. There are more, but because of time, I want to think of four. The first way that we as Christians surrender is lip service. Again, the Ravenhill quote of Christians lie when they sing. But when we sing, I surrender all, all, that is lip service for the majority of us. We're caught up in the tune and, and the sensuality of the experience. And we don't really consider the truth of what we're saying. That we don't surrender all. And we see in Ezekiel 33 a perfect exposition of this, beginning at 29. Then shall they know that I am the Lord, when I have laid the land most desolate because of all their abominations which they have committed. Also, thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls, and in the doors of the houses, and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them, for with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. 
for they hear thy, thy words, but they do them not. Sensuality instead of spirituality. And as Christians, do not we gorge on YouTube and conferences and sermons and meetings, and yet still our necks are stiff and our spirits are unyielding, and there's still not capitulation in the heart. But there's something from these meetings and YouTube sermons that, that tickle us, that there's something sensual in them. There's an enjoyment, but there's no substance there because it is not transformative. It doesn't change anything. There's no life. Our minds are distracted and our lives are uncommitted. And when I think of the years that we had devotions at 7 a.m. in the bungalow, everyone would come and the singing would all start and everyone would be shrieking the hallelujahs and the, the amens and everything else. And yet there was sexual immorality happening. Stuff going on. And yet they can bring a sermon, they can bring a word. Quite profound at times. Yet the heart is unregenerate. It's all superficial because there's no revelation. There is no touch of the divine in their, in their lives. No, no true surrender at all. It's just cerebral ascent, nothing more. Head theology, no transformation of the heart. So lip service, and so many Christians are like that, drifting through. Saved, yes, potentially, but no fellowship, no, no intimacy. A superficiality, a surrender that is just in name, and that's all. But there's no fruit in that at all. And it's really sad, isn't it? Really sad to live in a, a, a thirsty, dry land. Why would you want to be like that? And why should you be satisfied with such a meager meal as well? To be satisfied with the crumbs of a Christian life. I, I, I was saying last night, I can't do that. I just cannot do that. You want the full revelation of Christ in your life. And that comes with actually assessing, assessing deeply your own state and, and laying it down and saying, why am I holding on to this? What satisfaction do I have in this crumb that I'm holding on to? When God commands all because he gave his all. But why don't I put this down, this habit, this sin, this, this thing I must scratch periodically? Why don't I just put it down and leave it? Because, why? Because it restricts God blessing us. So our faith is nothing but superficial. It's a lip service. It has no depth. And I, I think it must be the most unsatisfying position to be in as well. Because you're neither in the world, you're neither out of it. You, just, you are this lukewarm, vapid, ghost-like figure. The second form of surrender, which again, a lot of Christians, and I, I've been all four of these, so there's an element of confession here. The conditional surrenderer. The conditional surrenderer, almost seeking God's approval for what already we have decided to do for our own agendas. It's rebellion 
self-seeking. No recognition at all of God's sovereignty. And no desire either for what pleases God. Jeremiah 42, it's quite a long passage, but I think it's worth turning to, given the length of the service we're extending to. (laughs) You remember that Nebuchadnezzar has raised Jerusalem, and there's not much to attract the remnant of Jews who are there. Nothing much there at all. And yet the lure of Egypt is looking pretty, pretty appealing at that point. Then all the captains of the forces, and Johanan the son of Cariah, and Jezaniah the son of Josiah, and all the people from the least unto the greatest came near, and said unto Jeremiah the prophet, Let we, we beseech thee, our supplication be accepted before thee, and pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant, for we are left but a few of many, as thine eyes do behold us that the Lord thy God may show us the way wherein we may walk and the thing that we may do. Then Jeremiah the prophet said unto them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray unto the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall come to pass that whatsoever thing the Lord shall answer you, I will declare it unto you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, The Lord be a true and faithful witness between us, if we do not even according to all things for which the Lord thy God shall send thee to us. Whether it be good or whether it be evil, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God, to whom we send thee, that it may be well with us when we obey the the voice of the Lord our God. And it came to pass after ten days that the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, then called he Johanan the son of Cariah and all the captains of the forces which were with him and all the people from the least even to the greatest and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto whom ye sent me to present your supplication before him. If ye will still abide in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down and I will plant you and not pluck you up For I repent me of the evil that I have done unto you. Be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom ye are afraid. Be not afraid of him, saith the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. And I will show mercies unto you, that he may have mercy upon you and cause you to return to your land. But if ye say, we will not dwell in this land, neither obey the voice of the Lord your God, saying, No, we will go into the land of Egypt, where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor have hunger of bread, and there we will dwell. And now therefore hear the word of the Lord, ye remnant of Judah. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, If ye wholly set your faces to enter into Egypt and go and sojourn there, then it shall come to pass that the sword which ye feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine whereof ye were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there ye shall die. 
Well, you would have thought if you'd heard that, you'd be thinking, right, there's clarity. <laughs> and how often do we pray and we don't have clarity? Very often. But I wished I had that clarity to hear from God. I'd fine. Then here it is where we're going to stay. But look in the next chapter in verse 2 it seems beyond belief then spake Azariah the son of Josiah and Johanan the son of Cariah and all the proud men saying unto Jeremiah thou speakest falsely the Lord our God hath not sent thee to say go not into Egypt to sojourn there incredible absolutely amazing isn't it they come before the Lord their God to seek his will and say, we will obey. But it doesn't line up with what they want to hear. And note the one word that's in there that, that is the giveaway. And all the proud men. Pride. Still on the throne of your own life. Rebellion. Refusal to submit. Refusal to surrender. They live by their own ends. They live by their bread alone. Thinking in Deuteronomy 8.2 And thou shalt remember all the ways which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble me thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. These men of Judah were living by their own bread. The manna that was given but not by the commandments of God. They wanted things on their own terms. Surrender was conditional. And what audacity when you think about it. The maker of heaven and earth. And you come before him saying, I mean, it's like our children isn't coming before us asking, you know, is it okay to go outside to play or something? You say, well, no, not now. And yet they go out anyway. Utter rebellion. Utter rebellion. Why did you come and ask me? Makes no sense at all. And yet our prayer life is so often that when we talk about careers or, you know, for us it was who do we keep and what do we do. And if I'm honest, there was pride in me because I felt really quite indignant at being kidnapped, if I'm honest. I was not on for it. And... <laughs> But there was pride because I got back and I thought, well, why should they, after all the effort that we've gone to, these are thoughts which, you know, I'm just being honest, that it runs through like a tiffotate. You think of all the sacrifice, changes of jobs and career, and, you know, family and the, the pressures and everything. And this bunch of guys who, who have reassigned everything, I thought, well, you know, they've taken away our, our thing and the sort of is, is our bag. And, I, it was only fleeting, <laughs> but there was, that's the carnal man on my back. And so quickly God said, is it really yours? Is it really yours? Do I not have a right? 
I was praying, saying, that, Lord, you know, we need to get back there. We do need to get back there because that's your will. No, <laughs> it's not my will. And interestingly, Kelly, who you saw at the front, as Shirley alluded to, a, a wonderful man of God. He's a, he's a teacher. And he uses his pension to go to communities, to rent a little house, a hut, and then he draws other pastors, like Sabbath, who you saw, who's the husband of one of our workers, Bala, and Pastor David. They come very quietly and silently, unannounced, and they will travail in intercessory prayer for days, boiling hot behind a closed door for that community, and then they go. Local pastors are invited, they come, they see there's nothing they're going to get out of it, so they go. But these few men of God have been doing this for 20-odd years in the Delta. And we, New Foundations, is merely an answer for their prayer. We're just part of that. Kelly it started all this, not us. God just put us to answer his needs. And now we're out and he's carrying on with the work. But he's really the instigator. It's, it's, it's humbling, isn't it? When we actually pray for something, do we actually pray that God will answer what we want or do we actually pray that it will be his will? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven in our lives. That, that stinking corpse on our back will have its way. Number three, the heartfelt but untested Affirmation of surrender. Bit of a mouthful there. What am I saying? Well, I suppose the best example is Peter in Luke 22, 33 and 4. When he comes to the Lord and said, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And the Lord knows exactly what's in the heart. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Well, bless him, Peter had a heart that was really wanting to step up to the plate. That was, that was the intrinsic Peter. There was a heart that was surrendered, really desiring. And how often we've been in that situation, haven't we? Lord, just use me in any capacity. But then the Lord said, well... Don't go anywhere, just sit and pray. Oh, I don't, you know. <laughs> there, there's a duality, isn't there? But there's something, as the Lord begins, as, a, as the Spirit ministers to us, there's a breaking down of ourselves, and our heart becomes a heart of flesh, doesn't it? When we think back what God has delivered us from, that hardness of heart, and increasingly it becomes a heart of flesh, and we do genuinely. It's like in worship, isn't it? We break into that intimacy with the Lord and then our heart just drifts off elsewhere. But, and then we reprove ourselves and say, why am I thinking about that when I should be focusing on worship? There's, there's a mismatch between that which we wish and that which the carnal man will do. And Peter had a heart that was fully following after Christ. And yet that carnal man reared itself up because he hadn't been tested. 
And that's why we should be rejoicing in our tribulations. We should rejoice when things get hard because that's the time that we are approved, that we're tested, and we have the choice to then say, no, Lord, thy will be done in that situation. I so identify with the man in Mark 9.23, sorry, 9.24, sorry. <laughs> when he cries out, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. His heart is, is hungry to trust. And yet the man on his back say, I don't know. But the heart will speak. And that is the most honest prayer, isn't it? is when we pray in semi-unbelief. We can shout the prayer louder and louder, but actually it's not that that does it. It's the quietness and the stillness of the heart that says, Lord, I trust you, but I'm struggling because I have doubts. And that is, that is as the psalmist said, it's communing upon your heart and being still, isn't it? Communing with the truth that is going on in our heart. And that heart can be doubtful. And that's okay because that's what God can deal with because he knows our honesty. Our heart is just being genuine. That was a faith that triumphed over the devil, I think it was Spurgeon who wrote. And the evil spirit was cast out of that child. And if we come and say, Lord, I yield myself in absolute surrender to my God, even though it be with a trembling heart. And with the consciousness, I do not feel the power. I do not feel the determination. I do not feel the assurance. It will succeed. Be not afraid, but come just as you are. And even in the midst of your trembling, the power of the Holy Spirit will work. It's good to be broken, isn't it? and know the weakness within ourselves. I think as we mature as Christians, this third form of surrender is probably the most honest for us. It's the one that I'm definitely at. That the heart is wanting to follow after Christ, but so often a fall down. And by his grace, he picks us up. By his grace, he picks us up. Where do we want to end up? Number four, the settled and a firm surrender, a progressive act of will, an act of intention and purpose underpinned by a desire to know God at any cost. At any cost. We only have one model for this. One model. Matthew 26, 39. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Fully human, acknowledging that this is a pain and a burden I do not want, humanly speaking. 
but I am fully surrendered that the will of God will be made manifest in my life. That is the revelation of truth that we see in the sheer humanity of Christ. And yet the full assurance of who he was in Christ and that ability to rescue and the hand of his father that will bring him through. Again, it affirms back to Matthew 16, 25, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. When we surrender for his sake, we shall find who we shall be, who we are meant to be, because we will have the fullness of the Godhead living in us, expressing itself through our utter surrender, where actually God can use us without us getting in our way, in his way. When he's got a fully surrendered Christian, anything is possible. Anything is possible. When we think of, of Solomon, now he had his faults, of course, and kings probably, the Habers on the faults and chronicles probably, the Habers on the better parts of him. But... I'll just read from Chronicles 2 if you want to follow down. And Solomon the son of David was strengthened in his kingdom and the Lord his God was with him and magnified him exceedingly. Then Solomon spake unto all Israel, to the captains of thousands and hundreds, and to the judges, and to every governor in all Israel, the chief of the fathers. So Solomon and all the congregation with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon. For there was the tabernacle of the congregation of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But the ark of God had David brought up from Kirjatharim, to the place which David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Moreover, the brazen altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the congregation sought unto it. And Solomon went up thither to the brazen altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of the congregation, and offered a thousand burnt offerings upon it. In that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father and hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established. For thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can judge this people that is so great? And God said to Solomon, Because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet hast asked long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, 
that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had that have been before, neither shall there any after thee have the like. We see in Solomon a recognition of the authority of God in his life. Why else would he have made the tabernacle so perfectly and offered a thousand burnt offerings? He knew that Levitical law that had to be followed, that sense of authority that came with the old covenant. And he respected it and did not abuse it. He did not put himself in the way. Again, I'm, I'm laboring on the good points of Solomon here. But he recognized the authority of God in his life. He also recognized his weakness too, his, his humanity, insofar that he said that who can judge this people that is so great? He knew humanly he did not have the ability. But he recognized that God had the ability to give that to him. And his will was in line with God's will. Because as God pointed out, he could have asked for anything. He could have asked for anything. But he was surrendered, I believe, at this point to God's will for his life. He asked that which God already had willed he would ask. There was a, a symbiosis, a synthesis between his need, his recognized need, his rejection of the carnality of riches, long life, power, and all of that. He knew he didn't need that. He, why? Because he was surrendered to God's authority. And he was met. And through the obedience and full surrender came the added blessings as well. Tremendous example for us as humans. Tremendous example. Now from this, I've probably given the impression that as we move to full surrender, comes full blessings in line with what we would de desire. But as we know, that is not the case in God's economy. I mean, absolute surrender gives the impression that God's going to use us dramatically, that when we're fully surrendered to him, it's lift-off time. The ministry begins. Well, perhaps so. Perhaps so. But perhaps not equally. Because all he's looking for is a surrendered heart to do his will, not what we think is going to be his will. And I think a great example of this is Charlotte Elliot, that wonderful hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea. But that thy blood was shed for thee, me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. We all know that hymn. It sends us into a different pl place as we sing it, I find. There's that sense of just full surrender to God. Small wonder it's been used so often at Crusades. And it's just been the tipping point for so many, I think, to just say, do you know what, Lord, just take me. I come. Full surrender. And yet the backstory of this hymn is beautiful. Charlotte Elliot, 19th century, suffered from depression and unspecified other illnesses, 
possibly autoimmune. And she felt very weak and insubstantial. And she came from a Christian family and the rest of her siblings and parents were used a lot. And there was an evangelical outreach and she wanted to be part of it, but her health had failed. And she basically just had to retire to her room knowing that she couldn't do anything at all. And she really felt it. And she decided at that point that she would write who she was in Christ, just write down the very essence, if you like, of her faith, which is this wonderful hymn. The, there's nothing else. It's thy blood, I come. O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am without one plea, she had nothing to offer. And she said, Lord, I have nothing. Complete brokenness, recognition of her weakness, her incapacity to be engaged in any way. And yet, with all the busyness of the crusade, I mean, I don't think any of us knew the outcome of the crusade, but when a woman of illness had surrendered, the fruit that came out of that is one of the most beautiful and powerful and anointed hymns I know. It's wonderful, wonderful. I think one of the hardest things to do, I find, is to be still and to be known of and to know God in surrender. Even just to surrender time and say, Lord, I genuinely want to know you. There's nothing else. And probably those who are most surrendered, I think, are the intercessors. Those people who sit in the back room, the boiler room of prayer. We mentioned Duncan Campbell earlier. When one think of the ladies travailing all night in prayer. When I think of Kelly giving his pension up. A little man who refused. I can't even give the guy a mobile phone so I can call him. He will not have it because he says it's a distraction. And a Nigerian turning down a smartphone is <laughs> very rare. Very rare. Any Nigerians here, I apologize, but it's true. <laughs> but he was, I, I spoke to him a few days ago, and I said, look, Kelly, you're so hard to get hold of, because he's always traveling and doing this praying. And he said, no, he said, he said I'll have to pray about it. He said, it's a distraction. To be surrendered in prayer, to be used to have no reputation, no church, no ministry, nothing. And yet he's fully known of God and he knows God. And that's why I respect him enormously. I respect him enormously. And I think to actually take a man or woman and break them down and get them to surrender at that sort of level is, is, is one of the most powerful testimonies I can see they are the people who know God and that's why we always feel we have to be out busy doing our father's business but actually probably the most profound act of surrender is to get away and get alone with God and pray that is true surrender because humanly there's no fruit from that so what have you been up to um how does one answer that? I've been alone with God. 
there's no currency in human terms saying that. Wherefore, my beloved, as thou, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, right, Paul, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12. That is really it, isn't it? To fully surrender is negotiating that between you and the Lord God Almighty. It's a deeply personal thing. Because God doesn't call us to surrender. It's not one of subjugation. He's not going to come and force us to do it. It's a willing laying down of the arms and coming before him and saying, Lord. And sometimes we come not even knowing how powerful he is either. But what we do know is how weak we are and how much of need of a savior we have. Micah 6, 8, I'll close. I love this verse, we know it well. How do we fully surrender? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Unlike a prisoner who surrenders and is incarcerated, Full surrender to God means to walk with him. It's amazing. To walk with he who made us. Isn't that a surrender worth working toward? Not to pull away from his hand like an errant child, but to walk with a laxity of grip, of direct relationship, with no coercion. And we have no greater example than the Lord Jesus himself who, like us, fully human, yet fully divine, yet surrendered his life in trust that as he laid his life down, his father would empower him to take it up again. The mystery of that, you could probably debate what I've just said, but that's how I understand it. Come, let us reason together. Come, let us lay our lives down. Not through coercion, but through loving subjugation that we have a Father who we can trust. And I thank God that my brothers and sisters there have decided this day whom they will serve in newness of life. It's not, there's no egos. It's not about them. It's not about us. It's not about man. It's about the veracity of the testimony of what Jesus Christ has done in our life that we may hold his hand with a softness and a winsomeness that is appealing to him and give him all the glory and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.